Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 14. Last week, we started into chapter 14. We made it into the um, Jesus and his disciples at what we now call the Last Supper, where he shared the cup and the bread and said, this is my blood and this is my body. And we talked about the fact that here they are celebrating Passover, remembering what God had done for them, and now they are being told, this is what you're going to do to remember what's going to happen, which was his body being broken and his blood being shed. And so we pick up today in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I like the fact that they sang a hymn. That's interesting, but I don't know what hymn they sung. I would speculate some, but the ones I would guess were written 200 years ago. They went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Why in the world would Jesus tell them this? Every one of you is going to run away. All of you are going to leave and fall apart because I, the shepherd, am going to be struck down and you, the sheep, are going to scatter. I mean... If I were talking to them, I'd try to give them this motivational talk, you know. Don't worry, things are going to be okay, we'll work it out. No, he says, you're going to run away. That's what he tells them. Now, we know this is what happens. I believe why he's telling them is because he wants them afterwards to come back to him. You see... When we get into a difficult situation and we don't do what we ought to do, when we do fail to do what is required of us, oftentimes the guilt and the remorse keeps us in the future from doing what we ought to do. It's like it builds on itself. And Jesus is telling them, you're going to run away. But you know what? Come find me when it's all over. And they're going, no, this isn't going to happen. In fact, Peter's going to argue with Jesus. And as we've said before, arguing with Jesus is a bad idea, just in general. But he's going to do it. He's done it before. He'll do it again. No, no, no. This isn't going to happen. At this point, I want to just jump in a little bit. Jump ahead in the story. I do this because, well, I think this is rather important. We've talked about this before. Today, there is a big argument. There's always been a big argument. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did that really happen? I remember hearing a uh, pastor one time speaking that when he was in seminary, and this would have probably been 70 years ago, he said he was talking to one of his fellow students who was going in for his final oral exam. And the student was going, well, should I go with it or not? Go with what? Should I go with the resurrection or not? 
Because at the time, you could kind of go either way and probably still make it out of the seminary. But in order to believe that the resurrection did not happen, you have to believe that this group of disciples knew that Jesus died. And they knew that he didn't rise from the dead. And then they sat around in a room and they created Christianity based on what they knew wasn't true. And you know what? I I have trouble believing that because they're all going to die for it. Every one of them is going to die for their faith with the possible exception of John. That's kind of a special case. They were not an organized body who happened to have lost their CEO. They were an organization that ceased to exist. The shepherd was struck down and the sheep went home. End of story. If it weren't for the resurrection, there is nothing left. Even Paul tells us, if Christ be not raised then everything that you believe is foolishness. I think he says is vain. So we need to remember that. These disciples aren't real strong leaders, and they're going to push through regardless of what happens to Jesus. No, they're all going to run away. But Jesus knows that. And Jesus is telling them, when it happens... Come find me. I'll be in Galilee. Which is kind of strange. At least to me it's kind of strange. You know, if I'm Jesus and I rise from the dead, do you know where I'm going? The temple. You go to the temple, Everybody in Jerusalem knows that you were executed three days earlier. You go to the temple and the city is yours. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. What he told them is, I'll be up in Galilee. Come find me. That area where most of his ministry had occurred, the area where most of the disciples were from, he's saying saying to them, go home. I'll be there waiting for you. I will lead you up to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though all fall away, I will not. What a gutsy guy. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now you're Jesus, you're Peter, and you're sitting there going, me? Never. Isn't going to happen. We'll see that in a couple of chapters. But he said, he, Peter, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. We're all with you, Jesus. Whatever happens, we're going to do it. Mm -mm. Isn't going to happen. We'll see that in just a moment. Well, next week. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. 
And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Hmm. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Jesus decides he needs to go pray. Why does he need to do that? I mean, he knows what's going to happen. He's already told his disciples what's going to, be, what's going to happen. I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles. They're going to beat me. They're going to kill me. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm not sure the disciples yet believe him, but he's told them. He knows what's going to happen. Why does he need to go pray? Hmm. My soul, no, no, no. He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus, God, is greatly distressed and troubled. You know, right, that whenever the disciples were greatly distressed and troubled, usually Jesus would tell them, your faith is way too small. Remember, in the boat, storms come up, they get distressed, anxious, etc. They think they're going to die. And Jesus says, why don't you have any faith? So here's my question. Is Jesus losing his faith? Does he not have enough faith that he is distressed? Let's think about that for just one moment. Wouldn't you? There was a way out. You, you, well, we're getting to that part. <laughs> My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for me. Remove this cup from me, yet... Not what I will, but what you will. Now, we have discussed repeatedly that Mark is a very action-oriented kind of writer. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And so we read this sentence and we say, Abba, Father, everything's possible. If it's possible, let somebody else do it. But not your will, but mine. And we think he's just going like this. You know, that's his thought process. Eight seconds, he said these two sentences. I'm not sure that's true. I think Jesus is sitting there in agony. And each of these sentences is him wrestling with what needs to be done. Let's talk about this prayer. Abba, Father. Abba is a term of endearment. It is a form of the English version would be daddy. It is an acknowledgement of his relationship with the Father. This isn't some stranger that he's praying to. This is his daddy and he knows it. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. 
Number one, he acknowledges that God can do anything. He can. Sometimes when we pray, we have this vague idea that maybe God's not quite capable of doing what we want him to do. You know, it's like we're going to give God an out. God, I know life's tough, and I know that I'm asking for something, and I know you might not be able to deliver, but I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to excuse you if you don't quite measure up. There was a book that was uh, very famous, I don't know, 30 years ago, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. You may have read it. And it's an interesting book. The author of it um, is Jewish, and his son had a horrible, wretched disease and died as, a, I think, an early teenager. I don't remember what age he was. And he was wrestling with the problem of pain. Why does a loving God, who supposedly is all-powerful, allow bad things to happen? And his result, his conclusion at the end of the book is God's not capable of stopping it because he didn't want to give up a loving God and he knew that bad things happen. So the only alternative that he could come up with was God couldn't stop it. And you know what? We all wrestle with that at times. We all begin to think, I've got to give God an out. What if I pray, well, what if I pray that the war in Ukraine finishes, stops today, and it doesn't happen? Well, maybe God just wasn't capable. But you know what? Jesus is not accepting that option. Jesus, right up front, Abba, Father, I know you can do all things. And let me let you in on a little secret. That's true. You say amen. But do you really? And here comes the ask, the request, the desire of Jesus. Remove this cup from me. The cup is a representation of the wrath of God. You ready for this? We hate this. No, you don't. You think you do. No, maybe you do. The wrath of God is going to be poured out on the Son of God in order to pay the penalty for my sins and your sin. And Jesus, the only, only person who never ought to have been the object of God's wrath, is going to be the object of, of God's wrath for us. I mean, I can give you the flippant answer to the book that I just mentioned. Why do good things, why do bad things happen to good people? The flippant answer is. There's no one good. And that's true. I don't recommend you telling that to people. When somebody comes up to you and says, these horrible things are happening in my life, how can God allow this? 
Don't look at them and say it's because you're a wretched human being. <laughs> Pastorally, it's just not a good idea. But theologically, it's kind of true. Every one of us, every one of us are by nature objects of God's wrath. Go read the book of Romans. None of you have done what was right. None of you have sought after the good. None of you, apart from Christ, are worthy of entering the presence of a holy God. Jesus was. And he asked the Father, take this cup and put it someplace else. Now, what would have happened if God had answered that prayer? I'll tell you what would have happened. We wouldn't be sitting here today. Every individual between 30-something A.D. to the present would have died in their sins and suffered the wrath of God. Rightfully. You think things are bad now? They would have been worse. So Jesus asked for this request. Why did he ask for it? And here's what I want you and me to remember. Sometimes we want to believe, because it's true, that Jesus is the Son of God, and he went through all of life with his head back and his head up, and he's ready to face it all, smile on his face, looking bad guys in the eye and just melting them away. And he did that, by the way. But we know that besides being the Son of God, he was also a human being. Sometimes we don't like that. Sometimes we want to be good Gnostics. Do you know what a Gnostic is? A Gnostic believes that the material world is in and of itself wicked and evil. So Jesus had the appearance of having a body, but he didn't really have a body because the body would have been evil. So Jesus had the appearance of being, having a body, but he was really just God. The Illustration that's given is if you, he's walking down beside the Sea of Galilee and you look behind him, there are no footprints in the sand because, well, that's heresy. Back up. He was sorrowful. He was distressed. He was despondent. He was worried that he was going to receive the wrath of God because he was human. Not because he was sinful, because he wasn't. Not because he was weak, but because he was human. Mother Teresa prayed to God. We know this from her journal. She said, God, I want to experience 
what Jesus experienced on the cross. And for years, she was alone spiritually. She was in the darkest place possible because she was experienced what Jesus was experienced, which was separation for that moment from God himself. The priest that I heard give that story said, that's why I don't pray things like that. Because <laughs> I don't want to know that. Jesus was a human being. Hebrews tells us Jesus was tempted in every way that you and I are, yet he did not sin. Why? He wanted to show us how to live our lives. He wanted to show us that it was possible. God, I know that you can do all things. I know that you are capable of doing all things. God, I want this cup of your wrath to pass on. Let, let's go to plan B, C, D, whatever it is. Let's do that. But then there is the third sentence. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. What is the point of praying if all you're going to do is tell God to do what he was going to do anyway? Why would you do that? Submission? You see, I pray and I tell God I want things to work out this way based on the assumption that I am clever enough, smart enough, wise enough to know that that is what is best for me. Jesus is right. Jesus is okay to say, I don't want to do this. I don't want to experience what I'm about to experience. But he's also submitting to the will of the Father. I have said before that this is the prayer that will always be answered. Not my will, but your will be done. Now, that's a hard thing to say. Because when my loved one is sick, I don't really care what God's plan is. I want them healed. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. She, she is asking, doesn't the mere fact that you are praying give you comfort? It does, but why? If we can learn that a loving God is directing the paths of our life 
And even though we do not have any idea why things are the way they are, a loving God who is all-powerful is doing them for a reason that we may not understand. Does that give us comfort? And I might add, for a lot of people it doesn't. It doesn't. So you fall back on either God can't do it or God is not loving. Because those are the only other things that have to go. One of them has to go. Or you can acknowledge God, I don't understand it. And I might add, usually when I teach about the providence of God and all that, I always have people come up afterwards, they want to tell me a horrible story in their life, and they want me to explain to them why God allowed this to happen. I don't have a clue. I don't. Jesus is demonstrating to us what faith really is. Faith is not demanding my way. Faith is saying, whatever you have ordained is the best way. But wait a minute. Let's not talk about Jesus for a moment. Let's just talk about all the bad stuff in the world. Are you saying that God is using that to accomplish it? Yeah, I am. But I don't like that. I'm sorry. I can't explain it. I've told you before, my favorite novel is The Brothers Karamazov, about the three Russian brothers, one of which represents the religious life. He's a monk. And one of them is the atheist intellectual. And the atheist intellectual is having, I mean, these are brothers. They get along with each other. And he's chastising his brother, how can you believe a God? And he starts listing all these bad things that have happened. And he says, just to make this story better, let's just talk about all the bad things that happened to children. And he tells the brother, and it's a, it's a really strong argument. Why would God allow these things to happen? And I'll give you the answer. I don't know. I don't know. But Jesus is sitting here about to experience the most unjust thing imaginable. I mean, let's face it. If God zaps you today, you probably deserved it. Now, you're going to say, well, I'm not as bad as the guy next to me. Why didn't God zap them? I mean, I was actually reminded of this last week during Cody's sermon you know, about being angry and murdering, and he says, most of us will say, well, I've never murdered anybody. That seems to be the universal, and I've commented before that I was listening to the radio one time, and they were interviewing a convicted criminal, and he said, at least I haven't murdered a large number of people. (laughs) We just keep raising the bar until we're under it. Jesus never Sinned in thought, action, word, or anything else. This is the ultimate unjust act. And Jesus is willing to do it for us. That's the gospel.
Without that, the gospel is nothing. Jesus, as a human being, says, I'd rather not do this. He is no fool. Okay? He is no fool, but not my will, but yours be done. It is interesting in the Luke account of the temptation in the wilderness at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, you know, the devil shows up, says, you know, bow down to me and I'll give you all this stuff, turn the rocks. It says at the very end of it that Satan left him for a more opportune time. I don't know if you remember the movie that came out however many years ago it was, The Passion of the Christ, really difficult movie about the crucifixion. Jesus in this scene is in the garden praying, and guess who in the garden is with him? Yeah, the disciples are over there asleep, but Satan is there too. You don't want to do this. They're not worth it. None of them are worth it. And you know what? It's all true. I want you to remember something. I said it last week. I'll say it next week, and I'll say it the next week, and the week, and the week after that. I'll tell you it every week until Jesus resurrects, is resurrected, okay? Jesus is in charge of this whole situation. At any moment, he could have run away. At any moment, he could have left town. At any moment, he could have called down his legions of angels and stopped the whole bloody thing. Don't ever think that he's being dragged into this against his will. He doesn't want it to happen, but it's not against his will because his will is to do the will of his Father. That is the definition of faith. When God says, do this, and I want to do that, faith says, I'm going to do it God's way. That's what faith tells us to do. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. What did he tell the disciples to do? To watch. Do you remember in our discussion in the last chapter about preparing for the second coming, we are told to be awake, to be aware of what's going on, to be aware of the things that are happening into the world. Don't to lapse into just apathy. We are told to watch. That's what he told the disciples to do. Let's jump ahead. Verse 37. And he came and found them <sighs> sleeping. They had just had a good meal. It was late. They had a busy day. They had walked a long way. They were fat and happy. What are you going to do? I'm going to fall asleep. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? That's one of those rhetorical questions. Okay. Child, did you take the cookie out of the cookie jar? 
when you got cookie all over their face? No, I didn't do it. Are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What's wrong with us as human beings? Our spirit, this is not the Holy Spirit, this is your spirit and my spirit. Our spirit wants to do the right thing. Go over to Romans chapter 7. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. Peter wants to do the right thing, but his flesh says, I think I'll go to sleep. I think I'll take a nap. Let me give you a hint. Jesus' spirit is willing, and Jesus' flesh has been disciplined to do what needs to be done. But Jesus is acknowledging us as human beings. We do have the desire to do what is right, but we are weak in our flesh. And Jesus is saying, don't let your flesh dominate, because then you will fall into temptation. When you refuse to do that which the Holy Spirit is telling you to do because of the weakness of your flesh, you are falling into temptation. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's contrast Jesus and the disciples. Jesus was a human being. Don't ever, ever forget that. Jesus got tired. Jesus got hungry. Jesus, I imagine, got sore walking all these long ways on these roads. But the flesh was not going to dictate whether or not Jesus was aware and willing to do the will of the Father. We as human beings allow our flesh to determine our actions. I had a discussion just recently, I think with somebody in this class, about fasting. Um, Why do we fast? Well, part of fasting is to use that time for prayer and meditation, etc., and that's good. But part of the benefit of fasting is to discipline your flesh. I don't know about you, but you know, my flesh every couple of hours says it's time to eat something. And you know what I do every couple of hours? I eat something. Why? Because I'm allowing the flesh to dictate my actions. Jesus did not do that. Jesus didn't want to suffer. He wasn't crazy. Okay? 
But what he wanted most was to do the will of the Father. Could God have stopped it without question? Could God have stopped it? I'm not sure I want to answer this question. Could God have stopped it and saved humanity some other way? Maybe not. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Without a perfect sacrifice, there's not a perfect salvation. Could Jesus have asked the Father to stop it and not said the last sentence? Yeah, he could have. Where would we be? We would not be reading it today. Jesus would have gone off and finished his... Anyway, go ahead. I wonder if he was thinking of, of Abraham and Isaac hmm? when uh, you know, Abraham was willing to sacrifice hmm? Isaac, but at the last minute God provided another sacrifice, yeah. another way, a way out. And I wonder if Satan wasn't reminding him of that story. Yeah. And Jesus was saying, God, is that, could that be possible? Yeah. I, think he, yeah. I think he knew the answer as he prayed. Another thing that came to mind is I think Jesus was anxious. Mm-hmm. We are told to not be anxious because we, like the disciples, usually, shall I dare say all the time, when we're anxious, it's because we do not have faith that God will do what is right. Somehow we think God's not going to handle the situation. Somehow we think God's going to mess it up. He's either not all-powerful or he's not Abba Father. And we've got to worry our way out of it. That's why we are anxious. I mean, it's the debate, you know, about being angry and not sinning. We know that it's possible to be angry and not sin because we saw Jesus do it. All I know is when I get angry, it's not a righteous anger. When I get anxious, it's not because it's because I'm not accepting what God has willed for my life. And Jesus did not have that problem. You're right. The physical sensation of anger, of anxiety, is not in and of itself a sin. Temptation. A temptation. It is a temptation to sin. Right. Jesus was tempted. But not with, yeah. So temptation to sin. No. Exactly. So what's the lesson of all this? Go home and pray. If Jesus, the Son of God, needs to pray, you need to pray. Tell God what you want. Do it. Do it. But remember, we're finite human beings. And you don't really want God doing something that he doesn't think is best. So we end our prayer.
not my will, but your will be done. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus was willing to die for our sins. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.